Please pray with me. Dear God, we gather to hear your words, so may you silence any voice but your own, and may your Holy Spirit stir within these walls and within our very beings that we are startled with your truth. May your word guide us to follow the example of the carpenter of Nazareth in all that we do. In the name and spirit of Jesus Christ, amen. So starting in early August, we have been spending our time walking through the Gospel of Matthew, following in the words of Rabbi Jesus and learning from him. Early in August, our disciples were out in the wilderness with more than 5,000 men, plus women and children, who were hungry. Jesus opened the eyes of the disciples to see that there was enough, and then gave them the privilege to learn by doing. So when the disciples fed so many, they experienced that it is God's will that we care for those who are in need. God is generous, and we are to be generous as well. The following week, when the disciples were out on a storm-tossed sea, Jesus came to them by walking on water. In this encounter, Jesus revealed that it is never God's will for us to have crisis or tragedy, but when they occur, it is God who will meet us there. And Jesus' grace was so powerful that Peter at that time even took a few tentative steps out of the boat with his faith onto the water. Last week, Sam reminded us that humans are too tempted to think very highly of ourselves and behave as if we're God. Just as making false idols is heresy, so too is narcissism. God is God and we are not, I think I heard him say at least a half a dozen times. So we'd better look around and make sure we know who God really is. Today we're back in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus has just had a very testy conversation with some Pharisees who challenged him to create a sign from heaven. They were so caught up in their own dogmas and identities that they could not imagine that they were actually seeing the long-awaited Messiah. They couldn't see Jesus. So now in this next text that we're about to hear, it's a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, and it's a pivotal point in the gospel. So listen for God's word as I read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. But he said to them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the, king, keys of, of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. And then he sternly ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Here ends our reading. About this time last week, I already had what I was calling very candidly to everybody that would listen. I had eclipse fatigue from all of the hyper-attention of what we would see, when it would occur, how we're supposed to look at it for this once-in-a-lifetime event that occurred last Monday. I know I sound cynical. 
I also know that there were many of you that made the exodus to Carbondale or some other point of totality to see with your own eyes the moon pass in front of the sun. And as I listened to people or read their reports of those who spoke of this visual perception, it was not just that, but it was a visceral reaction you had from seeing with your own eyes the heavenly bodies move, as well as experiencing it in the presence of so many friends and relative strangers that you reported having spontaneous tears of joy and a reaction such that you were already planning your next trip for the next total eclipse in seven years. On Monday, I didn't have the same reaction, standing on the sidewalk with one other person at Kenilworth Union Church for about 90 seconds with those glasses. I decided that my packed schedule was more important than looking up and seeing what was unfolding in the heavens above me. I sound rather a humbug, and it's at myself that I am saying, I know I missed out on something. I missed out on something. We can go about our days in such a routine that we are immune from seeing what is just in front of us. And it took the eclipse from for many of us to stand at once in the awe of God's creation. We are each but a small part of God's grand scheme, and yet we are blessed to live in a universe that continues to stretch our imaginations and a heavens that is still beyond the mastery of our mind. In hindsight as well, the eclipse was a welcome diversion from the hatred that we saw in Charlottesville or that continued to unfold on the national stage. The racism and the white supremacy that burst out two weekends ago and that has slithered around ever since then is not something that we can shove under the rug. By seeing this ugly reality, it calls us to do something about it. Just as we cannot go about our days in routine, that we are immune from seeing the spectacular, the same routines might also allow us to avoid the darkness that's living in our midst. But both events call us to consider our individual and collective clarity of vision. The clarity of vision, it takes practice. It may cause disruption. And a clarity of vision also requires courage. Because what we honestly may see will take a claim on our lives for which we are often unprepared. Jesus needed to get his disciples out of their routine before they could have honest conversations. Now some of you I know on your trips to Israel have been to the area of Caesarea Philippi, or where it was thought to have been. It was far from the disciples' homes in Galilee such that they were out of their comfort zones, and it was far enough away from Jerusalem that all their religious traditions were not staring at them. Around the first century, Caesarea Philippi had been a pagan outpost. It was originally named to honor some pagan gods, but renamed after Roman occupation for some general. Everything about the place upset the equilibrium of the disciples. But it was also a somewhat private locale. They were away from all of those religious opponents that were trying to question Jesus. And they were away from the adoring crowds that had been following Jesus ever since he preached that Sermon on the Mount. So it's on this dusty crossroads that Jesus asks, Who do people say that I am? And in other words, he's starting a conversation with them to say, Are you really aware of what's going on? I wonder if their collective response was at first just simply crickets. 
imagine they might have looked at one another before they decided to speak. But they did begin to speak of what I would call the infamous and anonymous they. You know who they are. At one time, you may have been in a new organization or a leader in a position, and when someone wants to tell you something that you're headed in the wrong direction, you were politely told, they say, only followed by this barrier you're about to breach or a sacred cow that they're afraid you might kill. And yet, we've never met a person named they. We encounter theys that are responsible for the public opinions, but yet they're hidden from us. They are very persuasive and always unnamed. The disciples replied, though, they say that Jesus is like John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of those prophets. And what the people supposedly thought of Jesus was not a slight. They weren't condemning him, these, these people. The prophets were revered in Israel for the way they had stood toe-to-toe with kings, for the way that they had denounced the tyranny that was ruling people, and also for the Yahweh's words of hope that they delivered to the oppressed. But those prophets that they mentioned, they were all dead. They were mortal. The they, the people, were stuck seeing Jesus through the lens of only the past and imagined Jesus in a very limited human capacity. But Jesus' disciples were different. Having left home and family, they had no vested interest in maintaining the status quo, and they had already voted for their feet with the new life that Jesus had brought. You see, the disciples had been eyewitnesses and participants to Jesus feeding thousands several times in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus had healed, he had walked on water, and Jesus spoke of freedom and love and acceptance. Jesus silenced all the religious leaders with his unyielding grace for sinners and outcasts. His followers had seen a curious mixture of humility, wisdom, inclusiveness, love, and this uncommon power. So Jesus pressed them, who do you say that I am? Now, although the you is plural in the original Greek, only one person mustered the courage to speak, and it was our beloved Peter. Out of all the potential contenders, Peter stepped forward just as Peter's faith was enough for him to step out of the boat and try to walk on water. At that moment, Peter saw in Jesus the truth that had been slowly unfolding but was unmistakably divine. That was the turning point in Peter's life. It was the turning point in the gospel, and it is the turning point in our lives as well. Peter confessed, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter hadn't reasoned this confession, and Jesus' immediate response confirms this with, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, but God in heaven. For no one can reason his or her way to faith through doctrines or by the popular opinions of what they say. Doctrines tend to get ossified into perpetuating ideas and institutions, not faith. And what they say is usually a watered-down version of the truth that never demands too much from us. So Peter got it right by trusting the faith that was stirring within and the truth that was in front of him. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But lest we think that Peter is a hero, next week we will hear a story of how Peter immediately gets it all wrong. Later in the gospel, he will also resist Jesus' intention to turn himself over to the authorities 
and he will eventually deny and desert his professed Messiah. But for now, just in this moment, he has the courage to answer the question Jesus asked him and all of the others. And Jesus blesses Peter's confession by promising, on this rock, on this rock of your faith, that's where I'm going to build a church. You see, Jesus had a, ch a choice between building a church on the imaginations and the opinions of the they-sayers who liked a nicely curated story, or he could begin with the faith of one man who was willing to take a risk on new life and a living God. Who do you say I am is a question that's set before all of us at one time or another. Although we as a congregation specifically shun faith statements or catechisms that teach us what to believe, we can't assume we get to escape this question. If anything, at Kenilworth Union Church, the challenge is even greater since we have to look with our own eyes at the world and look within our own hearts to find our way to confess Jesus. We can't just line up and say ditto or what they say is not an option for us. <clears throat> now we ask our confirmants to write a faith statement, and I will tell you it's very hard. To examine your faith, you become vulnerable to God and all those Bible stories you learned and the prayers your grandmother taught you or the hymns that you learned to sing. You think of the world around you, the people that you love, and those that you haven't been able to bring yourself to love. And if your integrity matters, your confession is to be what you believe to be true, particularly that which is beyond your sight and your ability to reason. Now, I've had to write faith statements several times, and every time I pull the old one out to revise it, I will tell you it always gets shorter. I'm more confident about what I say, but I don't necessarily know that it's any clearer. I keep trying. But a faith statement is not the end game. Answering the call to faith is. Theologian Hans Kruger writes, and I quote, Jesus never questions anyone about true faith, nor asks anyone to profess his or her orthodoxy. He expects no theoretical reflection, but just an urgent, practical decision. So who do you say that I am? I'll confess that writing this sermon was very difficult because it causes you to want to answer who do you say Jesus is. Last week I wrote a blog post trying to describe the Holy Spirit and I gave up and all I did was tell you about an experience of the Holy Spirit when we gathered for the interfaith prayer group. And last, this past week as I was writing this sermon, each time I taught of thought of taking my place amongst the disciples and received this question, I know that I would have been the one to reach for standard language and examples of what they say. And I don't imagine that I would have had Peter's courage to speak. So thanks be to God that Peter spoke, and men and women have spoken throughout the ages and have continued to speak the faith with not just their words, but with their lives. The answer to Jesus' question is answered by a love of life and a love of God and a love of others, more so than just love of oneself. And it's a life in pursuit of justice, peace, and a reverence for Jesus' grace.
Now this weekend with neo-Nazis again demonstrating in full view. And then last night I got a note from a friend who's a chaplain at a nice Protestant college who lamented all of the flyers that are being descended on newly coming freshmen for neo-Nazi groups that are forming. So I thought back to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor and an acclaimed theologian who died at the hands of the Nazis in 1945. In one of his sermons that he preached on this very text, he says, If it were left to us, we would rather avoid the decisions which are now foisted upon us. If it were left to us, we would rather not allow ourselves to be caught in the struggle. If it were left to us, we would rather not have to insist on the rightness of our cause, and we would so willingly avoid the terrible danger of exalting ourselves over others. If it were left to us, we would retire today rather than tomorrow into private life and leave all the struggle to the pride of others. And yet, thank God, it has not been left to us. In God's wisdom, we are called upon to make a decision from which we cannot escape. Jesus is asking us to let the Spirit move in us and to join with others on that dusty road at Caesarea Philippi to be a part of the church that he builds. Our lives are to confess who Jesus is. Our lives are to confess that he is the Son of the living God. And like Peter and those disciples, it will not make us popular, but it will place us into a place where even the gates of death will never extinguish it. May it be so. Amen.